Hello again, and welcome to this Saturday morning podcast. We've got a great show coming up for you today. But before we get to it, I'd like to take a moment to give a shout out to my patrons. Big thank you this month to Speed of Mercury, Randy Watkins, Matthew Hubbard, and Scott Gunstream. Thank you all for your loyal support. If you're not a patron, but you'd like to be, check us out at patreon.com slash saturdaymorn. We've got some fun benefits, and your support will help to keep the podcast going. Thank you for your patience. Now on with the show. Wake up, it's the Saturday Morning Podcast. Let mom and dad sleep in and come back with me to the 1980s. Let's grab a bowl of Corn Bran or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and flip on the tube. I've got the TV guide and hours of nothing to do. My name is Chris and I love all the Saturday morning cartoons. When I was a kid, I lived for Saturday mornings. Now that I'm an adult, I want to relive all those great shows and see how they came about. Let's take a deep dive back to the 80s and see what's waiting. Rewind! It's time for Beanie. Well, Beanie fans, Beanie and Cecil and all the gang are off on another adventure. An adventure that takes them all the way to Saturday morning. First, they pitched the idea to the studio, then sailed through pre-production, into arguments with the network, past a disillusioned family, and finally they reached their destination, the new adventures of Beanie and Cecil. Hey kids, it's time for the Beanie and Cecil Show! Hey Cece, that's us! What are we waiting for? In the fall of 1988, Network ABC decided to revive one of their classic shows. They decided that the kids of the late 80s needed the puppet magic of the late 40s. To be fair, they likely thought that kids needed Beanie and Cecil from their animated adventures in the late 50s and early 60s. The execs at the Alphabet Network would have been kids back then and in position to revive their favorites now that they had power. It's not a surprise, it's simply human nature. As a people, we tend to look back every 20 years or so and say, I miss this or that. And if you can do something about it, you do. They didn't have fancy words back in the 80s like reboot, but that didn't stop them from pulling the past into the present to share their childhood with the kids of that time. That is likely why the kids of right now know of the Transformers, Voltron, Power Rangers, and a ton of others. 
I'm looking at you, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And DuckTales. Woo! Anyways, the new adventures popped up on the tube at 8am, bright and early to kick off the Saturday morning fun. CBS was airing their new series, The Adventures of Raggedy Ann and Andy, to celebrate the 70th anniversary of the titular characters. NBC was airing their second and final season of Kissy Ferb after a one-year absence. Beanie and Cecil acted as a lead-in for another set of new adventures, this time for Disney's Winnie the Pooh. An hour of Slimer and the Real Ghostbusters followed. 10.30 brought a new show, a pup named Scooby-Doo, also rebooting a classic set of characters. 11 o'clock brought on the Bugs Bunny and Tweety show, showcasing vintage Looney Tunes. Animal Crackups at noon aired before the ABC weekend special, thus ending Saturday morning at 1 in the afternoon. In the 8 a.m. time slot, both ABC and CBS went for a recognizable nostalgia with properties that were between 50 and 70 years old. The first hour on both networks were based on older properties. On CBS, following Raggedy Ann and Andy was Superman. Though it had been brought into modern times, Soups was turning 50. Winnie the Pooh on ABC was the reflection of stories started 60 years prior. It now looks like an odd choice to put on Saturday mornings, but back then, we didn't care. It was something to watch. And if we didn't like it, we could wait until 9 o'clock when the big decision was Muppet Babies or The Smurfs. The world of Beanie and Cecil focused on the two title characters and their friendship. Beanie Boy is a young man with blonde hair and a propeller cap that were all the rage in the 40s and 50s. The hat can become the Beanie Copter and get him out of danger. The boy seems to be good-hearted, upbeat, and sometimes obnoxious. When the villains come out of the woodwork, Beanie has been known to get kidnapped. He relies on his friend by calling out, Help, Cecil! Help! And Cecil the Seasick Sea Serpent replies with, I'm a-coming, Beanie Boy! He's got a slight lisp, is green in color, and is not considered to be very smart. But he's loyal to a fault and protective of Beanie. Because he's so good-natured, Cecil is often taken advantage of by the villain of the week. Cecil has to be the oldest of the characters as he claims to be 300 years old. He also measures 35 feet 3 inches long. Oh yeah, and he's got a heroic alter ego in the form of Super Cecil. Captain Horatio Kermit Huffinpuff is Beanie's uncle and often referred to as Uncle Captain. He's in charge of the seafaring vessel the Leak and Lena. He has no compunction in doling out duties to Beanie and Cecil, but finds himself hiding in fear when real Jeopardy comes knocking. Lastly, there's Dishonest John. He's the main villain of the show who makes no bones about how despicable he really is. DJ dresses in all black, has a twirly mustache, and just looks like a guy you can't trust. He carries a business card that reads, Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap. Special rates for Saturdays and holidays. And yes, he did inspire that ACDC song back in 1976.
With Beanie and Cecil premiering in 1988, you would think it was an 80s cartoon. But it wasn't. It originated back in the late 40s with animator Bob Clampett. Robert Emerson Clampett, Bob to his friends, was born May 8, 1913 in San Diego, California. In 1925, at the age of 12, he was profoundly impacted by the movie The Lost World. Clampett would make films in his garage, taking inspiration from Douglas Fairbanks, Lon Chaney, and Charlie Chaplin. Funny enough, when the Clampets moved to Hollywood, their next-door neighbor was Charlie Chaplin. Clampett used his imagination to create a sock sea serpent that rivaled the movie's effects. He would use it to put on puppet shows for the neighborhood kids. For a brief period of time, Clampett worked at a doll factory owned by his aunt, Charlotte Clark. When Clark needed ideas for products, the young man suggested making Mickey Mouse dolls. He went to the movie theater and sketched the famous mouse, and then built a prototype of the doll. Clark was concerned about a copyright issue with Disney, and so drove herself and Clampett to the Disney Studios. They met with Walt and Roy Disney, who were delighted with the doll and set up a doll factory near the studio. Clampett would later recall Walt himself coming to the factory to pick up the dolls. The young man would stuff Walt's car to the gills with Mickey Mouse dolls so the head of the studio could merchandise them to the stores. In 1931, at the age of 17, Clampett went to work at Leon Schlesinger Productions as an animator. His first short was Lady, Play Your Mandolin. By 1937, Clampett had moved up to director, a career he would excel at for decades. He became well-known for his Looney Tunes shorts, but would leave the studio in 1947. Television seemed to have a future on the horizon, and Clampett wanted to try his hand at it. He resurrected the sea serpent character from childhood and managed to work out a deal with the improvised Paramount Television Network. The show was broadcast locally in Los Angeles on KTLA and then aired by Paramount via Kinescope. The 15-minute episodes aired six days a week and aired live. Dawes Butler voiced Beanie Boy and would go on to play Yogi Bear, Huckleberry Hound, and Elroy Jetson. Stan Freeberg played Cecil and would go on to a lengthy career recording parody singles and being a utility player in animation. Time for Beanie is credited as being the first creator-driven show in the medium, with Clampett overseeing all aspects of production. This particular fact would have a huge influence on future animators who followed in Clampett's creator-driven footsteps. The live-action puppet show, Time for Beanie, would win a total of three Emmys in the course of its run. It turned the world on to Beanie Boy, Cecil, Beanie's Uncle Captain Huffinpuff, Dishonest John, and Dudley Nightshade. The show told the voyages of Captain Huffinpuff's ship, the Leak and Lena. The adventures often spoofed topical events and acted as satire in its day. The show was popular and had a huge fan base. Boy, did it have fans. People like Curly Howard, future musicians Frank Zappa and Brian Wilson, and Groucho Marx all tuned in. It was even said that Albert Einstein would stop working just to watch the show. Around 1952 or 53, Butler and Freeberg quit the show. They were replaced with Irv Shoemaker as Cecil, Walker Edmiston as Beanie, and Jim McGeorge as Uncle Captain. Even Scatman Carruthers passed through for several episodes. 
The show stopped production in 1955, but returned in animated form in 1959 for Maddie's Fun Day Funnies. On this version, Jim McGeorge moved up to voicing Beanie while still maintaining Captain Huff and Puff, and Shoemaker returned as Cecil. The Beanie and Cecil segments were so popular that the show was rebranded in 1962 as Maddie's Funnies with Beanie and Cecil. Though this new format only ran a total of 26 half hours, they were rerun on Sunday mornings and took on a life of their own. With Beanie and Cecil seemingly running its course, Clampett took to the road. He toured colleges lecturing and speaking about the history of animation. In 1974, he won the Inkpot Award, honoring his career in cartoons. The next year, he was the subject of the documentary Bugs Bunny Superstar. The doc took a look at the famous Warner Brothers cartoons, and most of the raw materials were provided by Clampett. Back in 1955, Bob married Sody, and the couple would have three children. Sadly, on May 2, 1984, Clampett suffered a heart attack in Detroit while on a tour to promote Beanie and Cecil on VHS. He passed away six days short of his 71st birthday. In his later years, Clampett had made friends with John Chris Felusi, the future creator of Ren and Stimpy. The two formed a professional friendship, and Clampett became something of an inspiration and mentor to young Chris Felusi. As a child, Chris Felusi had watched The Great Piggy Bank Robbery, directed by Clampett, and that set him on a path to become an animator, writer, and producer. In 1987, Chris Felusi partnered with Ralph Bakshi to develop a madcap version of Mighty Mouse for CBS. When that show came and went due to controversy, Chris Felusi went on to develop The New Adventures of Beanie and Cecil for ABC. The project was blessed by Clampett's family, and they expressed their desire for Chris Felusi to be in charge. It all came together, and production started for a fall 1988 premiere. With Beanie and Cecil being resurrected from the 1960s, all that was left to do was assemble the perfect cast. Mark Hildreth was born January 24, 1978 in Vancouver, British Columbia. He started his professional career as an actor in the TV movie Love is Never Silent at the age of seven. The next year, he taught himself piano and even performed in the opera Madame Butterfly. His musical talent is not a trait that runs in the family. He has said that two of his grandparents were born deaf. His first voiceover role came in 1986 on the English dub of The Humanoid. Two short years later, Hildreth was cast as Beanie Boy, one of the two leads of Beanie and Cecil. William Richard Wurstein, Billy to his friends, was born April 16, 1952. At the age of 11, he and his family moved to Boston. William has said that his father was an alcoholic and tried to kill him at least 15 times. Though it was not known at the time, William was born with ADHD and autism. In his early 20s, he followed in the footsteps of his father and fell in with drugs and alcohol. Realizing this was a wrong direction, he went to rehab and got his act together. He began his career in 1980 with the band The Shutdowns. He was nearly 30 at the time. The band were an oldies act that started to get attention. 
It might have been at that point when William Werstein changed his name to Billy West. In the early 80s, West started at radio station WBNC in Boston. He excelled at impersonations and would be featured on The Big Mattress Show. In 1988, West left his station to move to New York and work for K-Rock. His stint at WXRK was short-lived as he took a break to pursue his first television role. He had landed the part of Cecil the C6 Sea Serpent on Beanie and Cecil. Jim McGeorge was born October 15, 1928. He started life as an actor and found time to write cartoons as well. His first voice role was in the 1952 series Thunderbolt the Wonder Colt. He played a cop in B-movie, get this, Teenagers from Outer Space. As a writer, he worked for J. Ward Productions. Yes, that J. Ward, the creator of Rocky and Bullwinkle and many others. In fact, McGeorge was even a writer on George of the Jungle. In the early 80s, when he played Crazy Claws on The Quickie Koala Show, McGeorge had worked steadily through the 70s in voice work. In the 80s, he was Bort on Mighty Orbots and Dr. Scarab on Bionic 6. Back in 1959, McGeorge had provided the voices of Beanie Boy and Captain Huffinpuff on Maddie's Funnies with Beanie and Cecil. Almost 30 years later, he reprised the role of Captain Huffinpuff on The New Adventures of Beanie and Cecil. Maurice LaMarche was born in Toronto, Ontario, Canada in 1958. His acting career started in 1975 in front of the camera in live action. While gravitating to voice work over the years, he found a home in 1985 as exasperated Chief Quimby on Inspector Gadget. In 1986, Moe, as he's known to his friends, auditioned for the role of Egon Spangler on The Real Ghostbusters. It was a role he won by sounding more like Harold Ramis than Harold Ramis did. In 1987, he was iconic character Popeye on Popeye and Son. In 1988, when he was cast as Dishonest John on Beanie and Cecil, he was also voicing Henry Mitchell and George Wilson on Dennis the Menace. After these messages, we'll be right back with the premiere of The New Adventures of Beanie and Cecil. You can start your day! Kettle's on his back's way! Well, Heidi's back's asleep! You'll be hopping down the street! Hopping on your hands! Hopping on your feet! You'll be hopping! Yeah, you'll be hopping! We dig them like this! We dig them like that! We dig them on a spoon! That's a matter of fact! You'll be hopping! Yeah, you'll be hopping! So you can take the bus or hop like us. Make a snack the part of your complete breakfast. Sweet tasting honey smacks. You'll be hopping. I always dreamed of having the most special sisters. Always sisters. The sisters you've always dreamed of. Lauren, Abby, and Meredith sold separately or together. A beautiful big sister who's always on the go. Lauren, your dress is perfect. Don't forget your pearls. She'd get lots of phone calls. It's for you. And lots of flowers, too. I love having you for a sister. Lauren, Abby, and Meredith. Always sisters sold separately or together. New from Kenner. To find trees funny enough to grow sun-kissed fun fruits. I don't think we're going right. <laughs> we search in the deepest, darkest jungle. I wouldn't do that. Oh, 
Sunkish Fun Fruits are made with the funniest fruits. So every chewy one is real pretty fun. Fun Fruits, real fruit snacks from Sunkist. This is CBS. If you watched the premiere of The New Adventures of Beanie and Cecil, the date was September 10th, 1988. The number four song on the American charts was Monkey by George Michael. The number one album on the charts was Hysteria by Def Leppard. The Nation was reading A Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking, the number one nonfiction book in the country. A parody of the California Raisins were on the cover of Mad Magazine, issue 281, with Alfred E. Newman's face on the lead raisin. Other topics in the magazine included St. Elsewhere, Spuds McKenzie, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and A Different World. The retail price was $1.50. Cheap. On ABC, the other shows that premiered that day were The New Adventures of Winnie the Pooh and a pup named Scooby-Doo. It was also the third season of another show that now changed its name to Slimer and the Real Ghostbusters. If you were a kid in 1988, maybe you got up early and got yourself breakfast. Maybe you had a new cereal like a bowl of Mickey Mouse Magic Crunch or Morning Funnies. I'm alarmed by the way this opens. You know, with an alarm clock. We also find that 10-year-old Beanie is in bed with 300-year-old sea serpent Cecil. Are we to understand that a much older male in bed with a child is okay? As long as it's a mythical sea serpent? That's a weird standard, but it was the 80s after all. And if it wasn't just a little subversive, it wouldn't be a John Crisfalusi joint. Beanie and Cecil wake up to hear the announcer, and then Cecil eats the title. A charming little ditty starts about sailing, and we cut to the Leek and Lena on the sea. We get introduced to all the characters, so we can jump right into the show when it actually starts. Dishonest John fires a cannonball at the ship, but it gets deflected, and Cecil saves Beanie from the fire. The song tells us that Cecil always saves the day, so I think I know how every episode is going to end. John also gets booty pinched by a crab, and I wonder if that's some message about STDs. It was pretty common to get crabs back in the day. I hear. I enjoy the fact that this show also sets up a roundtable of kids gathered around an old-fashioned TV, and Cecil looks like he's going back to his puppet roots. The curtain parts and the sea serpent also lays a big ol' kiss on a cartoon Bob Clampett. Nice touch to break the fourth wall to acknowledge the past. Like Mighty Mouse The New Adventures before it, this show is meta. I do have to wonder if kids watching knew who the four-eyed guy was, or if they just thought he was a weird human that wouldn't ever appear in any of the episodes. When the episode, The Framed Freep, starts, Beanie Boy is surfing a wave without a surfboard. That's an amateur move right there. It's like podcasting without a mic, or playing baseball without balls. Sure, it can be done, but it ain't gonna be pretty. Beanie Boy starts to sing a song to the tune of the intro. Turns out he's surfing on Cecil, the seasick surfing sea serpent, 
But that's still not how you surf. Uncle Captain and the Leakin' Lena show up. I don't know about you, but Captain Huffinpuff reminds me of someone. I thought it was the Gordon's Fisherman, but it's probably the flasher that used to stock my school parking lot. I know that John Kay has done many, many questionable things in his past, some of which he's even copped to. But that makes me wonder about the symbolism in this show. We already witnessed the weird underage sleeping habits of the title characters, and now Beanie gets on the ship by sliding down Cecil's back. He was literally riding the serpent, which seems like a euphemism for... uh... something. I would say I'm reading too much into this, but I don't think I am. This is from the guy who gave us Ren and Stimpy, which is full of questionable references and imagery. It's like John K. said, let's see what I can get away with. And he got away with tons until they were cancelled or he was fired. Or until Ren sodomized Stimpy. Uncle Captain says they need to take care of a monster for the king of How Are Ya, and confusing wordplay ensues. It's not who's on first, but it gets the job done. The horrifying monster, the Freep, needs to be captured. This looks like a job for... Sock Puppets? Uncle Captain gives the order to push off, and Crowy the Crow takes to the crow's nest to do crow things. Like get Huffinpuff's map. The captain plots a course through the nasal canal by the light of the silvery moon and ends up in the specific ocean. As a grammar nerd, I love the reference to the specific ocean. It's a very Pacific reference on this show. The gang wash up on Why Not Kiki Beach to tackle the monster and save the day. The natives, led by Big Chief Muckamuck, comes charging at the newly arrived. I imagine this is what it was like to first come to America, but with more smallpox. Turns out the natives are running from the three-headed freep. Ignoring the nuts and bolts on this monster, the newcomers think it's real. Uncle Captain says he's got a two-part plan. Run and hide. Doctor Who would adopt this as a philosophy in the 2000s. Cecil is determined to protect Beanie and rears up for a fight. There's a cutaway to Dishonest John who takes full responsibility for controlling the Freep. He's gonna oust the natives and turn the island into Club Bad as a getaway for the 80s yuppies. Also, he sounds like he might try to sell jars of Velastic Pickles. He's just a nonsensical line away from being the new Groucho Marx. Using his submarine scope, he spies Captain Huffinpuff's butt and says he'd know that face anywhere. On the island, Cecil says he's not afraid of any freep and says his name is Cecil Balboa. Quicker than you can say sequel, 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 the natives make a boxing ring apparently familiar with the Rocky series. Uncle Captain introduces the fighters as the ref and the fight can begin. Let's get ready to bumble! Does anyone else think Cecil's gonna have a hard time boxing? He's got no arms. He's not even wearing boxing gloves and I'm pretty sure that's a requirement of the boxing commission. The free launches Cecil with a rope-a-dope and he goes flying away. Uncle Captain declares the Freep the winner just as Cecil comes crashing down to Earth. 
The next attempt to defeat the Freep is the use of Freep paper. That's the last thing the natives need. If the Freep gets stuck on that, it'll moan and wail and die a slow death without food and water. It's to feel fear, but it'll make a hell of a lot of noise until its heart gives out, and that's all she wrote. Ugh, that's not a thing kids need to see on Saturday morning. Demonstrating the paper, Uncle Captain gets caught and proves he's an idiot. King Muckamuck is concerned they'll have to leave the island. His daughter, Princess Princess, says the Freep's never been violent. Beanie is smitten with the princess. I say she should test his affection by going undercover as non-Princess Princess and see if the boy likes her without the title and prestige. In the middle of trying to figure out the Freep, the three-headed monster makes his way through the forest. They would have known he was coming through the jungle if only they had left a glass of water on their dashboard. When you see the ripples, run for your life! Princess Princess is frightened, and Beanie says he'll save her. Beanie charges at the Freep, saying the monster is ugly. And I agree. They'd be more attractive if they ditched their 1930s gangster fedoras. Beanie rides his friend, and the two try to lure the monster from the village. Not paying attention, they just about go over a cliff. They stop just in time and get a wily coyote view of the river below. But the Freep is closing in. Beanie says it looks like curtains for them. And then there are curtains that close the scene. During the confrontation with the Freep, Cecil manages to knock him and Beanie off the cliff. Suicide over having a Freepening seems like a good alternative. Cecil catches a cliff branch and they stop falling. But wouldn't you know it, the Freep has a saw and down they go. Cecil says he's got a terrible sinking sensation. That's a step away from having a bad feeling about this. The branch snaps and they go down faster than alphabet cereal on Saturday morning. After these messages, we'll be right back. When I grow up, I want to be a toy maker. The best thing about what I do is being able to make all the toys they never made for me when I was a kid. I get up in the morning and I ask myself, if I were a kid, what would I like to play with? And I go to the people who work with me and we make the toys. But being a toy manufacturer isn't all fun and games. Hmm? Addition, subtraction, multiplication, division are things that we have to use all day long just like this. Oh, and fractions are also important. Art and science were also important because to be able to create a toy, you have to be able to imagine it in three dimensions. But recreate it in two dimensions, like this. If you think that someday you'd like to create toys, then study hard now. Because everything you're learning in school will help you make your toys. When I grow up... Back from break, Benny and Cecil are still falling. It was literally a cliffhanger. In case you're wondering why, it's because Cecil's middle name is Cliff. It's not, but you know, it worked for my stupid joke. As the duo dive to deadly depths, Crowy is holding out a trampoline on the leak and Lena. He can totally catch them. Cecil speeds his dive, capsizes, and sinks the ship. Sea serpents have been known to do this, so it's not unexpected. Back on shore, Beanie makes sure everyone is okay. 
Cecil takes like 10 minutes to twist and turn and pop all the water out of his scales. Beanie thinks there's something fishy going on. Can he say that in front of another sea creature? What if Cecil said, only we can say that, and the word fishy was considered derogatory? They could have dealt with fishism in a way never before explored on Saturday morning. But I guess that would have been too controversial, so they just kept it quiet. What a load of carp! Beanie and Cecil find angry natives mobbing King Muckamuck. Turns out that the freep is cornered and just might be murdered to death. Beanie runs a distraction, telling the natives their sandals are untied. This works, and the freep can run for its life. The monster gets away, and the king sees through the smokescreen. Also, the natives wear self-lacing sandals, so they don't know why they were fooled. The king says that Beanie should be punished, and they burn the blonde-haired, blue-eyed child. No, wait. Uncle Captain and Beanie pull the run-and-hide routine. Princess Princess tells her dad not to murder Beanie into hamburgers because the boy must have had a good reason for not killing the monster. When the king goes off to chase Beanie and company, the shadow of the free falls on Princess Princess. Meanwhile, the gang are running away like King Arthur's knights. Beanie tells Uncle Captain that the natives caught the wrong freep, implying there are two of them. I like that Uncle Captain is running backwards to face Beanie during their conversation. I bet that really strengthens his core. Beanie and Cecil, in that order, detour into a mudslide and get washed down a mud waterfall and swallowed in a dark cave. Uncle Captain keeps running because he's got the attention span of a goldfish. Turns out the cave Beanie and Cecil fell into belongs to the Freep. And this monster is a three-headed girl, unlike the Freep they've been chasing. I'm actually surprised that, as a girl monster and given John Kay's track record, they don't have three boobs. It's also a nice touch that they have a three-headed teddy bear sitting on a bookshelf. Once Beanie and Cecil realize that the Freep is docile, the duo sit down and take tea with the creature. And yes, the Freep drinks tea with a pinky claw extended. Monsters have manners too, you know. Turns out this Freep is the Framed Freep. That's the name of the episode. So, Beanie and Cecil, hey, that's the name of the show. This self-referencing show is self-referencing. Beanie is determined to do right and prove the Freep's innocence. Just in time to help with that, the fake Freep shows up and he's packing a handful of Princess Princess. The girl is a hostage and Beanie is properly motivated to save her because, you know, she's all pretty and stuff. Years later, in an alternate history, Beanie would list these into island types on his eHarmony profile. But that's a scene from another show. In the here and now, in the late 80s, the Freep takes off with Princess Princess and... After these messages, we'll be right back. Lost? Yeah, I've been adrift for days and I'm tired of frozen breakfast. Then follow my snoot to flavors of fruit. Follow my nose. Whoa! Kellogg's Fruit Loop Cereal with natural orange, lemon, and cherry flavors and lots of vitamin C part of this complete breakfast. They're cool. Space aliens. 
They could be anyone. You can have the power to find them with your alien detector kit. One free in Fruit Loops. You can find out who or what is out there. Princess Princess calls out for Beanie Boy to rescue her. Damsel in Distress Syndrome is definitely a call to action. But boy does it make this girl look weak. And doesn't that teach girls that they need to be rescued? What kind of toxic TV was this? Oh yeah, the 80s. The real Freep, now in love with Cecil, wants to help Beanie to fight Dishonest John's Mecha Freep. If Cecil plays his cards right, he might get himself a Freepway. Beanie and Cecil investigate the island to look for clues. Cecil's channeling his best Sherlock Holmes with a spyglass and a deerstalker cap. Because kids of the 80s loved going to 221B Baker Street. Why no love for other fictional detectives? See, August Dupin came first. And I know kids were clamoring for the Hercule Perot cartoon back in the day. But it all comes down to Sherlock Holmes and now he's a stereotype. Deer soccer caps, by the way, were for hunting deer, not criminals. Beanie questions why Cecil's looking for clues when he's sure he knows where the freep went. We pan over to see a trail of carnage and a lit up sign that reads, This way to the freep. They saw the sign and it opened up their eyes. The sign is pointing to Club Bad, the luxury hotel dishonest John built since this episode began. Over at Club Bad, where the bad come to play, Dishonest John has a line of baddies waiting to sign in and get a room. Some of pop culture's best-known villains are here. The Joker's next to Doctor Doom. A Frankenstein monster is in front of Marvel's Red Skull, who I think is right next to Doc Ock, who looks like a Peter Griffin prototype. There's a guy in a hockey mask with a bag that's got a chainsaw sticking out of it. A fake Darth Vader is patiently waiting, and for our friends at Cherry Bombs, Ming the Merciless brings up the rear. The scariest guy is the schmo that's checking in. He's wearing a trench coat, so who knows what evil he's channeling. The scariest monsters are always the ones you don't suspect. And back at the elevator, I think there's Ralph Bakshi with an R-crumb-shaped suitcase. What, they couldn't clear Fritz the cat? Dishonest John shows off his handiwork to Princess Princess in an attempt to impress her, and a monologue to the audience about what all this means. Princess says, DJ's mad. I'd love it if the cross-dressing psycho turned around and said, we all go a little mad sometimes. But he doesn't. Instead, DJ takes Princess on a personally guided tour of Club Bad. He shows off the shark-infested swimming pool, and they feed a good guy to the sharks. The horror! The horror! Beanie and Cecil get to the resort and find the mechanical freep just chillin' in the shade. You know, this is Club Bad. It's not like Dishonest John is trying to be subtle. Cecil tries to do recon work on the freep and manages to clumsy his way into knocking over the three-headed robot. Beanie and Cecil are finally able to realize this is a robot cracking this mystery wide open. Or something. Though this mechanical beast is taken out of commission, wouldn't it be great if it robo-evolved into Futurama's Bender? That might have been the best crossover of three millenniums. Poking around the resort, Beanie and Cecil find the pool sharks. 
and they hear Dishonest John holding Princess Princess hostage. Even DJ criticizes Pee-Pee for all the time she's called out for Beanie to rescue her. She tells him it's in the script, so contractually, she's got to say those lines. When the villain's tired of having a helpless damsel around, you know those writers got lazy. Dishonest John suits up in the Mecha Freep and tries to persuade the other baddies to join him. He gets turned down by a blue meanie who just wants to enjoy his vacation. He just got away from Pepperland after 20 years. Leave him alone. He's on vacation. The Freep chases Beanie and Cecil, in that order, into the shark pool. Bet those surfing skills we saw earlier substantiate what's about to happen. Oh, I take that back. Surfing means nothing and the plot goes another way. They had the setup in the palm of their hand and didn't even use it. Benny makes a play to rescue the princess, giving her his beanie hat. He turns it into the beanie copter and Princess Princess flies to safety. Beanie calls out for Cecil, who replies, I'm a coming, beanie boy. DJ calls Beanie propeller head. Somewhere in England, Will White and Alex Gifford sat up and said, That's it. The Freep sisters show up and offer to help. Cecil pigs his way into saying this is a man's job. And then the real Freep saves the day by using the old fake Girl Scout selling cookies ploy. It works every time. Cecil ousts Dishonest John from the robot and rescues Beanie. DJ is caught by the Freep, who turns him into a yo-yo. Yo. At the after party, Beanie scores a kiss from Princess Princess. And Cecil gets a wet one from the Freeps. Turns out that Dishonest John is now going to be the Freeps' baby, and they have him stripped down to a diaper. When it comes to death by natives, it's better than going out like Michael Rockefeller. With a quick song, the Leek and Lena sails out of the episode. The End After these messages, we'll look at the impact, aftermath, and explore the legacy of The New Adventures of Beanie and Cecil. My friends and I love our Radio Shack radio-controlled cars. Watch out! Here comes Buster! My 4x4 off-roader's big tires hit a lots of bumps to get me out of here quick. And look at my turbo racer, run for cover! Doing my high-speed turbo Lamborghini corner, I'm out of sight in no time! Oh, he always finds us. Buster loves to chase cars. Radio Shack's Radio Control Turbo Lamborghini 4x4 Off-Roader and Turbo Racer. Batteries not included. Radio Control toys each sold separately. Only at Radio Shack. Are you kidding? Switch toothpastes. Loverboy here needs his fluoride paste. Oh, Mom, I want a gel for fresh breath. Pat, we switched to Aquafresh. Now we fight cavities and freshen breath. Aquafresh gives you all the long-lasting fluoride protection of the leading paste and all the breath freshener of the leading gel. Concentrated in one toothpaste. Fluoride for cavities. And gel for fresh breath. We'll switch to Aquafresh. Double protection Aquafresh fights cavities and freshens breath. Introducing Pocket Rockers, Tiny Tapes, Tiny Players. Down on the corner, out in the street, Pocket Rockers are playing, where the music feels the beat. Pocket Rockers, play them here, wear them anywhere. Down on the corner, out in the street, Pocket Rockers are playing, where the music feels the beat. 
Tiny players, tiny tapes. Pocket rockers, tapes and accessories sold separately. Batteries not included from Fisher Price. Was it a phenomenon? You would think it would have had a shot at fame, but oh god, no. Let's see what happened to the cast after the show, and then we'll dive into what happened behind the scenes. Mark Hildreth would be one of those rare child actors that never left the business. In fact, he's gone on to wear many hats. After Beanie and Cecil, Hildreth lent his vocals to such shows as Camp Candy, King Arthur and the Knights of Justice, and Action Man, among others. In live action, he's made appearances on shows like The Odyssey and Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, the TV show. In 2001, he appeared on stage as Eugene Marchbanks in George Bernard Shaw's Candida. Not long after, he joined the band Davis Trading as a keyboardist and singer. Shortly after joining the band, Hildreth left to go solo. He released the album Complex State of Attachment in 2008 and a follow-up in 2012. Around 2007, Hildreth fell in with an organization known as Nexium, a company that claimed to give personal growth seminars. Hildreth, along with actress Allison Mack from Smallville, led Nexium's artist and acting program known as The Source. As many may know, Nexium turned out to be a recruiting platform for a secret cult called DOS. After a decade with Nexium, Hildreth distanced himself from the group and claimed he did not know about DOS, or about how women were recruited, branded, and used for sexual slavery. His most recent role was as Lord Greystone in a 2020 episode of the TV series Novelmore. Billy West might have only voiced Cecil in the eight episodes of the show, but that was just the beginning of his career. After Beanie and Cecil, West found himself at the Howard Stern Show where he stayed until 1995. He left over money issues, but had enjoyed his time on the air. During his tenure at Stern Show, he provided all kinds of impersonations, ranging from Margaret Schott to George Decay to Ray Stern, Howard's own mother. In 1986, West would voice Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd for the big screen film Space Jam. Not long after, he was cast as Philip J. Fry on Futurama. Other notable roles include playing both Rin and Stimpy, the Red M&M, and Shaggy from Scooby-Doo. He's been called the new Mel Blanc, but has originated many, many voices during his career. He lost out on the chance to voice Shaggy long-term after Casey Kasem retired. The role went to live-action actor Matthew Lillard, who had played Shaggy in the big-screen Scooby-Doo movie. It might have been at that point when West became outspoken about actors taking roles from voice actors. In 2014, his band, Billy West and the Grief Counselors, released an album titled Meepod. Music had always been an outlet for West. Back in the early 80s, he traveled with Brian Wilson and Roy Orbison, playing guitar in their bands. In 1982, he channeled his best Beach Boys Mike Love for the spoof song Another Cape Cod Summer This Year. Most recently, he voiced several characters on the Matt Groening series Disenchanted. Today, West is considered one of the best voice actors in the world and certainly one of the most versatile. 
In the 80s, Jim McGeorge started to stockpile credits in voice work. His last credit was in 1991 for Tailspin when he was in his early 60s. On January 16th, 2021, McGeorge passed away at the age of 92. Maurice LaMarche went on to several unique roles. Doing a spot-on impersonation of the late Orson Welles, he found work in Tim Burton's Ed Wood as well as The Simpsons. Taking his Welles voice to new heights, LaMarche originated the role of the brain on Animaniacs and Pinky and the Brain. He recently reprised his role on the Animaniacs revival in 2020. You would think that, with such a storied history and a following through decades, that a new version of Beanie and Cecil would be a hit. It came from the mind of Bob Clampett, an animation legend. The characters were loved back in the 40s and the 60s. The original puppet show even stopped Albert Einstein in his tracks and took away from possible scientific breakthroughs. Though if Einstein could have perfected time travel, he could have caught all the episodes at a later time. Albert Einstein creating time travel to come to the present to watch the DVD of Time for Beanie is a movie I would watch. Anyways, it had something of a cult following. A revival in the 80s seemed like a perfect fit. With trends coming back every 20 years or so, there was no better time than the 80s. The revival was spearheaded by John Chris Felusi, hot off of Mighty Mouse The New Adventures. That show reinvented the characters, made them modern, and still stands today as a work that is funny. You don't know what to expect when you watch, and that unpredictability makes it fun. Chris Velusi has stated he learned a lot from Ralph Bakshi. He credited Bob Clampett's unconventional storytelling as his inspiration for getting into animation. And Chris Velusi not only had respect for the animator, but the two became friends. All this and the blessing from Clampett's family seemed like the perfect mix to capture lightning in a bottle. Not only that, but Chris Felusi managed to bring in behind-the-scenes artists that would go on to have full careers. The first episode of Beanie and Cecil was written by Chuck Lorre. You may remember him as the creator of The Little Clowns of Happy Town, who would go on to dominate live-action multicam comedies for decades. Some of his hits include Dharma and Greg, The Big Bang Theory, and Two and a Half Men. Trash by some standards, but genius to others. And then there's Paul Dini, who would go on to Tiny Toon Adventures and help to modernize DC superheroes like Superman and Batman. He and Bruce Timm created the character of Harley Quinn on their show, and the character became so popular, she now appears as canon in the comics. Oh yeah, and Bruce Tim was on staff on Beanie and Cecil. Deanie and Tim would go on to create the show Freakazoid together. The new adventures of Beanie and Cecil came around when Network ABC wanted to bring the show to Saturday morning. They negotiated with the Clampett family for the rights. The family insisted that John Chris Felusi be a part of it and wanted the show in his hands. This was late 1987 or early 1988. Whatever the case, these negotiations delayed the start of production until the middle of 1988, with the lineup of new shows scheduled to air in September. Ultra rushed into production, all parties concerned did their best to make their deadlines. Behind the scenes, Chris Felusi clashed with the network. 
Perhaps it was Chris Felucci's recent mentorship with Ralph Bakshi that kept him pushing for edgier material. The company would submit their scripts and storyboards to ABC, who kicked back notes that they wanted it to be softer. It would appear that Chris Felucci wanted to push the medium, trying to sneak more adult jokes into the show. At the time, this might have been considered shocking. On the original show, Bob Clampett himself made jokes about current affairs that the adults got, but the kids didn't. The kids were there for the sea serpent and the gags they understood. When Time for Beanie aired, TV was a new medium. The creators knew they had to keep it clean, but did so with a wink and a nod. Unlike the 1980s, they didn't have watchdog groups to contend with who cried for wholesome entertainment. It's really a shame that Chris Felucci didn't try the syndication market. His ideas might have found a home without network notes. So there was a battle between the vision Chris Felucci had for Clampett's source material and the expectation of the network. ABC initially ordered eight episodes for the fall. It was a small order for a new show, which usually gets a minimum of 13 shows to start. This might have been in response to going into production so late in the game. Maybe ABC thought season two would get a full 13 if it were a hit. The clash between Chris Felucci and ABC put the writers and animators in the middle of the battle. With Chris Felucci trying to get his way, the soldiers on the ground were likely trying to carry out orders from the producer and then having to reverse it for the network. Tensions rose over the tone of the show. The tug of war resulted in a series that was deemed unsuitable for children. The Clampett family was unhappy with the end product, though they remained supportive of Chris Felucci. Of the eight episodes ordered, only five aired. The remaining three were locked away in a vault. Those three, Cecil Meets Clambo, The Golden Menu, and The Courtship of Cecilia, have been partially found. I believe the series as a whole can be found on YouTube, with the last three shows only consisting of fragments. On October 8, 1988, the new adventures of Beanie and Cecil ended after five episodes. It is an interesting curiosity. It featured Jim McGeorge reprising one of his characters from the previous series. It helped to launch Billy West's career in the voiceover field. It allowed John Chris Felucci to go on and create his own production company, Spumco, which would produce Ren and Stimpy. If nothing else, the new adventures gave us a few more adventures with Beanie and Cecil and helped us remember the remarkable animator and director that was Bob Clampett. And it's a testament to the story Clampett created. While the show in the 1980s wasn't successful, remember that the legacy of Cecil started when Clampett put a sock on his hand and decided to entertain the neighborhood. At the age of 12, I would wager that Clampett himself was the real-life beanie, going on all kinds of fantastic adventures with his sea serpent friend. So, maybe watching Beanie and Cecil in all their incarnations is really like looking at a piece of childhood when adventure called, and there is no limit to what you could do. Were the new adventures of Beanie and Cecil a favorite of yours? Do you have a different opinion? Did we stir any memories about the 80s you'd like to share? Listen until the end for our contact information and let us know. Until next time, thanks for tuning in. 
Thank you for joining us at this Saturday morning podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe. If you could do us a favor, leave a five-star review wherever you get your episodes. Check out Twitter at SatmornPod for announcements and other cartoony things. We're also on Instagram at SatmornPod, the official source for all the behind-the-scenes stories of the podcast. Got a minute? Check out the Saturday Morning Minute on YouTube. We offer quick looks at all those great 80s shows. And what about you? Do you have any vintage Saturday morning memories? If so, email your story to satmornpod at hotmail.com. We could read it on the next episode. If you'd like to support us so we can make more of these things, find us at patreon.com slash saturdaymorn. You'll find a stockpile of season one bonus content as well as new features added monthly. You'll also have a chance to win behind the scenes prizes as well as being given email priority. (laughs) i'll be like uh what the hell is that when i edit it but you know what screw that that's future chris's problem right there and back at the elevator i think there's ralph bakshi with an r crumb shaped shoot shoot why did i write this line i'm so dumb all right, no pressure with Benny. Benny. <laughs> no pressure, one and a half words. Okay, bye bye.